0: Hello, this is Stephen Coates. Still wandering around exploring this wonderful country called counterculture. So many highways and byways, forgotten corners, lost underground realms. Why don't you come and help me explore it? Join us, join Richard, Suzanne, Pete, Prod and Simon who have supported us this month with contributions or suggestions for future shows. Bureau of LostCulture.com, you can get our newsletter and help us build a little countercultural community. Now this episode is sponsored by Continental Drifts. My friend Chris Tofu's Cultural Director. He hasn't paid me to say this, but I thought I would, as he introduced me to today's guest and to Dennis Bevel who I interviewed recently. Chris was also a guest himself, talking about the free festival scene a few months back. Continental Drifts is an extraordinary unique countercultural events organisation. They promote the most wonderful, diverse range of global artists. In fields, festivals, and funny places all over the UK. Check them out, I'll put some a link to them in the show notes. Now speaking of festivals, this October is our countercultural festival dedicated to mortality in the city. London Month of the Dead, over 50 walks, workshops, talks, visits to strange parts of London, theatrical performances, workshops, all sorts of mortal malarkey, londonmonthofthedead.com if you want to find out more. But let's begin. We've said many times on this show, the counterculture seems to get associated mainly with the 50s, 60s and 70s, maybe the 80s, and mainly with white people. We've also noted that it's always going on somewhere just out of sight and that's so true of the subject of this episode, the so-called Asian underground, an extraordinary explosion of music, culture and community that emerged in London and various other urban centres around the UK in the 90s. For me anyway it was a previously hidden or ignored culture, second generation South Asian kids ripping it up, mixing their own cultural heritage with the latest urban beats and sounds and forming a new counterculture which, like many others, fairly rapidly hit the mainstream. And who better to talk about it than one of its originators? My guest today, Paramdeep Sadev, better known as Bobby Friction, DJ and television presenter. He was born 21st of August 1971 in Hammersmith and grew up in South England. His career as a DJ started in 1997 with residences a Swaraj night at the Blue Note, Hoxton and the Shanty Club of Birmingham's Custard Factory. He joined BBC Radio 1 in 2002 and the Asian Network in 2005, and he's been there ever since, presenting shows showcasing new music by British, Asian, and South Asian artists. He's won lots of awards, and he's presented lots of documentaries for BBC and Channel 4, on all sorts of subjects, including the history of Indian hip-hop, pub culture in the West Midlands Punjabi community, and the aftermath of the assassination of Indira Gandhi in New Delhi in 1984. We're going to dig into all sorts of other stuff, as well as the birth of the Asian underground. Racism on the city street, guzzles, I've never heard that one before, ABBA, Prince, Bangra, daytime gigs, hip-hop, drum and bass, the Beatles, Sikh culture, radical politics, but mainly, of course, music, music, music. Hello, Bobby.
1: Hello. Is it going all right? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really happy because um, I've always been obsessed with counterculture and you interviewing me has finally given me a countercultural stamp of approval, I think. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, let's start with that then. What does it conjure up for you, counterculture, the word? Counterculture for me, uh, uh, right from the beginning, mm. was about the 60s. Mm. Very British Asian um, upbringing, stuck inside my mum and dad's house within mm. this British Asian community and... Um, there was a documentary 20 years after Sergeant Pepper came out, Right. And I literally just watched it as a teenager because it was on TV. And we had a couple of channels. And bang, you know, the first thing I'd ever seen where I looked at the people and went, that's who I want to be. This, this, this is what I want. Sergeant
0: Pepper's because, of course, Sergeant Pepper's in a way is when the Beatles first started their, or not long after they'd started their kind of relationship and inspirations with india right and stuff but just to back up a bit so let's just set the context of you being born early 70s in west london hammersmith right yeah what about your folks and your family how did they get to west london
1: okay so my father was uh what these days would say is was a child of partition Mm -hmm. the british leave india india splits into Pakistan and India, later on Bangladesh. My dad was on the Pakistani side of the border. He was Sikh. So, uh, you know, as a, I think he was seven years old at the time, he did the refugee thing. You know, they left their houses upon pain of death and um, essentially migrated to India. So um, he left India very early. He just had this roaming spirit and um, left India at the age of 20, ended up in London, And uh, then married my mum in 1970, who had a very Punjabi upbringing. So her upbringing was very pastoral and kind of like the suburbs. And, you know, uh, oh, we're in India and the British were in charge once. And now we're in charge. And it's all very nice. Whereas my dad was like, you know, birth oh. refugee you know a refugee camp dilly who am i what's going on street urchin all of that kind of stuff
0: right quite a mix then right yeah they? and but they met here and married here right
1: no you? it was like everyone else in his uh-huh. days arranged Arrange, marriage right. my okay. dad he escaped india he escaped the clutches of his family but he didn't escape the arranged marriage he actually went on a ship went back to india had an arranged marriage, with my mum, and then she came over a, a year later.
0: Right, 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 and then the, <clears throat> one year later, you came along, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. just on 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 that level, just I want to impress upon people, um, there are people, very arty people, very bohemian people in India. In every culture, as there has been for hundreds of years, they weren't the ones who did the emigrating, you know, because. They essentially, at the time, were already middle class and beyond. You know, there's a discussion maybe to be had on another another show. Where does the counterculture come from? And do you need a middle class or a working class to do it? But the mass immigration that happened here in the UK was definitely uh, middle, uh, working class mm. and very lower middle class. So, I mean,
0: we're going to circle towards, you know, the Asian underground, as it's been called, right? But before we get there, I mean... It's quite interesting that context of India, isn't it? Because one of my questions for you is: Is there was there a counterculture in India, right? So you're partly answering that it was that yes, right, amongst a certain group of Indians, is that right? Because we, you know, the, the counterculture became associated with the East, right, through the Beatles, Maharishi, you know, the journeys across to, you know, uh, to the hippie trail and all that sort of stuff, Eastern mysticism. But from what you're saying, that was very different than your parents' culture, right?
1: Yeah, because, I mean, it's even the same in the UK. You had bohemian culture Mm. happening during Victorian times, and you could call those countercultural currents. but mass adoption of the counterculture didn't happen until the late 60s according to what I've Mm. seen so the same with India you had artistic bubbles around India, bohemian bubbles but uh, the mass adoption of counterculture didn't even happen when it happened over here, it was essentially guys from over here uh, people from over here going out and going This is really, you know, the whole Mm. debate, you know, yoga, chai, Maharishi's, (laughs) you know, the drone of the sitar. It sounds very psychedelic. So, no, there Mm. wasn't a counterculture there. But a lot of mystic Hindu culture, which has been there for millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years, um, that's always been there. So, if anything, if there was a counterculture that was adopted as a... Mass movement. It happened after the first wave, and the first wave was essentially, you know, um, hippies on a trail wanting to right. get out of uh, post World War Two urban sprawl of Britain.
0: Right. So, I mean, that, what we're talking about there—that the Hindu mysticism. That was actually the culture. It wasn't the counterculture. That was the culture of, or part of the culture of those places, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, for your folks, they've they they're here. They're in West London. You're born in West London, and then you start to grow up there. And just tell us a bit
1: about that. What was it like for you growing up in Hammersmith? Well, it wasn't Hammersmith. I was born in Hammersmith, right. and then those first ten years, I've been in Hounslow. Right, uh, you know, which is where I spent most of my life, and then quite a bit of time out in Hampshire and Surrey, in Farnborough and Camberley. Mm. Um, So all I remember of the 70s was racism, Mm. skinheads, the NF graffiti everywhere, and being... I mean, I I don't want to get into massive discussion on race, but one of the things when you grew up in the 70s as a young Asian boy was you got used to grown white men shouting out the P word at you and chasing you. So um, for me, the 70s was a kind of beautiful decade inside the house and actually a really traumatic decade outside the house
0: so tell us a little bit about inside the house then why was that so beautiful
1: well it was just you know i was didn't realize at the time how lucky i was i was um getting fed beautiful bollywood music um which unlike what we have now, where it is very neon and, and you know, the most common denominator. Back then you had legends like Muhammad Rafi and Latha Mangeshka, where, you know, the art of, of uh, a thousand years was essentially woven into popular music. I had that. I had the spiritual music growing up and being Sikh and Punjabi, that affords us a real nice dip into both Pakistani and Indian culture. So I had Kuali music Uh, And Nusra Fadali Khan, as I was growing up, I had guzzles, which are even more beautiful and mellow and, you know, very religious and spiritual. What's a guzzle? That's a new one on me. Okay, so uh, guzzles, I mean, mean, I'm not going to do it justice. Uh, Guzzles, um, you've got folk music in different Mm -hmm. parts of India, um, and that's always celebrated. You have popular music like Bollywood music, Mm -hmm. which uh, post-Indian independence was actually used to unify the country together. Guzzles uh, within Hindu... Hindi classical music and Hindi uh, uh, Pakistani music are essentially um, semi-devotional, mm-hmm. but they're like the poems of love set to music. So you would separate it from what you might hear religiously. You'd separate it from popular music. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure if there's a, a British parallel, but... Um, I mean, it sounds quite high culture, right? is it quite high culture, that music? It, It's high culture mixed in with popular culture Mm. because my mum and dad were listening to it. Mm. The one thing they didn't do a lot of was listen to proper Indian classical music. Um, Not that only, you know, upper class people in India listen to it. You have to be of a certain mind and a certain bent. So, yeah, Guzzles, essentially um, the poetry of the subcontinent set to music uh, based in classical, but... In in a popular way, quali mm. uh, music, Islamic devotional right. music, uh, Sikhs only pray uh, in sung for, in sung formats. So so when you listen to Sikh religious music, it's sung at you, you know uh, carols, prayers, you know uh, southern devotionals, Baptist churches, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. So you had a lot and all. Of course, all of that stuff goes into you know what we're going to hear about in a bit. The the Asian underground. But uh, let's have a listen to something which incorporated those guzzles. Just tell us about that.
1: Well, I'm going to give you Satanic Nafs from the Gaslamp Killer, a very, very famous countercultural head from California, alongside uh, Mofono, who remixes this track, and the South Asian artists, Jalbi, who are so good at taking guzzles, Classical, like South Asian music, and cutting it into absolute shreds. And this track really is an amazing exploration of just how insane those South Asian beats can get. that going up and then I was touched by the hand of Abba I was touched by <laughs> which you know the amount of times throughout my life I've tried to push away they'll always come, come back. back sure 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 sure. You know, so, good
0: so right so that's quite a mix so quite a heady mix actually but I mean mm. so y- you were sort of growing up
1: bathed in music then were you sort of inside the house at least yeah not- but like, like I think any lower middle class person I was bathed in music but without context it, it's just the hi-fi was on constantly right, and uh, right, right. you know uh, as I say as a sharp relief compared to what it was like like outside i think now looking back i equated music with with calmness and happiness and liberation so
0: so the door's firmly shut you don't have to deal with like people abusing you or like the kind of harshness of like the 1970s where you know a lot of racism right in this country
1: yeah yeah exactly That i remember um looking at punks and not knowing the difference between a punk and a skinhead and there were so many punks where i was (sighs) growing up and uh you know I didn't know the intricacies or the nuances of anti-nazi punks and all this stuff. I just remember growing up, look, when you're brown and you and you spend a lot of time in places like Hampshire and Surrey, especially in the 70s, you get used to wherever you're going, people stopping and then staring at you, you know, open-mouthed. That That's just the nature of what Britain was like in the 70s. I'm not putting blame on anyone. So... um It's just a lot to deal with, you know, Uh, it's only now I look back and I think, God, I was always dealing with everyone going, swiveling their Mm. heads and looking at me like, who is this animal or who is this, this person? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That sounds quite... I mean, because you know, I didn't have any experience like that at all. That sounds... You'd feel quite vulnerable. Maybe you just toughened up to it quickly, did you? You just got used to it.
1: I, I toughened up to it, but I think that some... You know, just uh, in the same way we look at people and say, this person uh, takes in a lot of energy mm. and, and, and uh, feels, feels negative and positive mm. energies, or this person just has this shield of steel around them. I didn't have that shield of steel. You know, some people in modern day languages say oh you're an empath you feel empathy all i know is that is it just felt like pain mm. constantly it probably wasn't pain it was probably people just going oh there's a colored person you know to use 70s language but when you're young and some of those people shout at you and and say nasty stuff to you you end up just walking around going outside the jungle inside yeah
0: safe right so that music that you were kind of you know it was on at home the whole time and your folks that i'm assuming that's the sort of where it starts for you or where it begins to percolate your kind of life in music right yeah so what's the next thing that happens then so you're lots of music at home tough world outside what's next in Body's life
1: well the early 80s started i'm I'm nine or ten years old Mm -hmm. and um what what a joy to be born at that time mm. to turn 10 years old and start having to look outside the house and having synth pop hit you having pop music hit you and then the one person who changed my life my musical life forever um, Prince came into my life and he really did come into my life it wasn't just um, I was really into Prince yeah he really came into my life and, and changed everything tell us So um, it's double-edged. On one side, he changed me internally because um, I just, at the time, there was nothing to grab onto. There was no one, you know, to use a very worn phrase now in these times of discussing diversity, I had no one that looked like me um, or someone to look up to. Prince, even though I now realise just how black he was at the time... He came like he used to say, I ha- I have no race, I'm not black, right. I'm not white, I'm not straight, I'm not gay. Um, and just on, on a really basic level, he was the same skin colour as, as a lot of Asians I knew. He wore ostentatious, bright colours. He looked like my mum's wardrobe, you know, the colours <laughs> that he wore. He looked like that South Asian, very bright, sari mm-hmm. vibe, you know. I grew up in a house where people wore turbans. He looked like all that stuff and... Talk about the best entry point ever. You know, I listen to Purple Rain and, you know, there's... Come on, you listen to the album, you hear Hendrix guitar solos, you hear slow, electronic, uh, psychedelic ballads, you hear the country and western of Purple Rain, which is a country and west western track and a gospel track. And then I brought Around the World in a Day, which came out after um, Purple Rain and a friend of mine whose dad was a roadie, um, so he's turned on to music. Just turned around and went, "Oh, that's supposed to be Prince's Sergeant Pepper." You need to listen to Sergeant Pepper. Oh, do you like his guitar playing? You need to listen to Hendrix. Next day, he brought in Sergeant Pepper. Two days afterwards, he brought in a mixtape that he'd recorded hmm. of of Hendrix, and 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 you know, like essentially, Prince was my entry point into the whole canon of Western popular music. You know, it it was just like a a ta- tactical nuclear musical missile had been let off in my head. I just followed every avenue all the way to the end. This is, this is, this is the Beatles. Oh, okay, and this, this, this is uh, Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie. You know, I just went. And because it's Prince, you literally go into multiple arenas. Amazing. You know, because I spoke with
0: uh, Dennis Bevelius today and Dennis talked about Hendrix in a similar way. He, Hendrix occupied... The sort of position in the Pantheon that it sounds like Prince did for you. It was almost like he was been visited by yes. this deity yes. in some way. Like obviously, also. Hallelujah,
1: a deity, totally visited. I, I, I totally resonate with that. Wow.
0: Yeah, and it, and it changed him. I mean, he he talks about it in that way that it actually it was a sort of, it was a sea change in his life in some way to witness this person doing this. So for you, so okay, so Prince was like the gateway into Western. Music, right? You also mentioned in terms of Sergeant Pepper that maybe a little bit later, but you then see the documentary as well, right? About that, so the, uh, the, these things started to come together, did to in some sort of synthesis for you?
1: Yeah, to- totally. Because uh, Prince, as I said, was the glue, was mm-hmm. the um, uh, the magical kind of. Uh, imp that went round and buzzed around my head and opened everything for me. Um, And he didn't just open music. His attitude towards sexuality, race, Mm -hmm. gender, all of that stuff really, really just resonated with me. Um, You also had uh, my background. So when you've had all that Indian, Pakistani and South Asian music playing, just like anybody else, you can't get rid of those... those, Literally those notes, those, those sequences they're imprinted in your DNA and then when I was listening to the Beatles and hearing Within Without You and all the stuff that George Harrison did with Ravi Shankar and beyond suddenly it gave me even though I respected my culture i by this time kind of tried to leave it behind Mm. and my culture means people shouting the P word at me it reminds me of pain as I was growing up, my mum and dad are embarrassing me because I'm a teenager and why wouldn't they and then listening to the beatles giving the entire indian palette musical palette the cosign from from up above i was just like oh my god that's my culture george harrison wanted to be like me and i want to be like george harrison and prince is the two guys that links us so um yeah really really special times and then um It's not counterculture, but the Bhangra scene started in the UK. Well, tell us
0: about this, because this is another extraordinary sort of thing that happens. Because, I mean, the other thing I've got to ask really is is that we talk about the Asian, we talk about the Asian underground. I mean, it's a kind of strange word in in a way. I mean, we don't talk about the European this or the European that when it comes to cultural stuff, because there's massive diversity, isn't there? But just sticking with that kind of word for now amongst the Asian communities, to, to, so far in the time you're talking about, it had largely been those kind of sounds that you're saying that were playing in your house, right? That kind of mixture of sounds with Bollywood and the, uh, the, the, the other stuff. So, and in that community, there wasn't anything... Was anything homegrown going on at this time? I mean, there were people... In, in the 80s, yeah, there was.
1: so it started then, did it? Yeah, yeah. So, so the Bhangra scene mm. was the first truly British musical genre... Everyone thinks it's a South Asian genre. Bhangra is a South Asian genre. It's a folk music from one region in India, from the Punjab, where most Sikhs come from. So, you know, it's not even really a reflection of India Mm. and Pakistan and, and, and South Asia. It's just a reflection of that. But there were a lot of us. We're a very musical culture. We have a very... We are definitely of the same family as our South Asian Muslim brothers and sisters and our South Asian Hindu brothers and sisters but being Sikh is kind of different. We're almost like the Kurds of South Asia. We're why? Like, Tell us why. Um, because a we're a tiny minority. There's only 20 million of us. It's 1.2 billion people, you know, in India. There's 20 million of us in the world. Like like the Jews, like the Kurds, like like all of these these cultures you get across the planet that don't fall into the big monoliths. Hinduism is a monolith. Christianity is a monolith. Islam is a monolith. There's only 20 million of us. And we have our own separate religion, which is a separate religion. So what happens to you when you're squeezed between two monoliths is you fight and scream and shout to make sure everyone knows you're not them and you're us. And I see that with Kurdish minorities and with jewish people um so anyway to relate that to what we were talking about um it just so happened that the sikh form of folk music um uh, and the punjabi form of folk music bhangra suddenly morphed within the space of 10 years from the mid 70s onwards it started off as oh we've been in the country a couple of years someone's getting married have you got a musical instrument let's have a bit of a, a play around to Fully-fledged bands who had synths and bass guitars. This is all, hap- all happened here in the UK, in Little Pockets in Birmingham, in Smethwick, in Southall, in London. And then the day gig scene started. So this wasn't counterculture, because I'd say that was the actual Asian underground. But what Bhangra did in the 80s is it suddenly gave South Asian people the kit and the blank canvas to go anything can happen in this bloody country when it comes to music. Look at what we've done in 10 years. We've taken a folk music and added synth, and, and we're playing in clubs now and there's lights and there's amps and stuff. You see,
0: we talk about counterculture. And for me, you know, it does... When I think about counterculture, it's like late 50s, 60s, 70s, right? But if you talk about being countercultural, what does that mean? It means against the culture, against the main culture. So these days you might call it subculture or a yeah. multicultural, right? But So that stuff, that that homegrown Bangra thing was countercultural wasn't it because it was it was Well, it's part of your culture but in terms of the main culture it was pretty hidden it was a bit underground right it was it, kind of coming from
1: coming from the roots yeah I mean I, look there's two parts to this it's a linguistic debate is it the counterculture mm-hmm. I'm saying no because to me the counter culture uh, from the 60s does mean uh, heady deep, Meditational states brought on by music and various other substances. Substances, right. all right. Uh, and whereas bhangra was a pure, brash mm. celebration, right? You know, if you, even if you looked at the politics of the bands involved and the people involved, they did not see themselves as countercultural. Right. In fact, they didn't even see themselves as middle class. They saw themselves as working class people keeping their traditional culture alive. So. Yes, it's countercultural to the mainstream narrative. It happened without any help, unlike a lot of black music in Britain, uh where there's a long relationship between w- white people who love music and black music in Britain, whether it's Jamaican, uh African or African American. Yes, it happened. What we did was completely untouched by anybody because no one wanted to touch it and we set it up to essentially soundtrack weddings and mm-hmm. the so so yeah, it's against the mainstream culture, but not counterculture. Yeah, right, for me. it's
0: popular. It was for you, it was popular, yeah. entertaining music, right? Yeah. Okay. So it starts to grow. So, you, so it's performed here by bands using synths uh, and stuff. And that, so that scene, that Bangra scene, starts to sort of take on a life of its
1: own, does it? Yeah, I mean,. Uh, it's the whole thing. You know, when we look back and we go, oh, isn't it mad that, mm. you know, the Beatles released uh, Revolver in 66 <laughs> and look what happened in four years. Um, same situation, you know, in the early 80s, there were no gigs. There were right. just uh, weddings and things like that. By the mid 80s, the first day gig started where that phrase day timers comes from. I, I mean, my first day timer was the Empire in Leicester Square. You know, it's Friday. I've bunked off school and I'm walking in and I'm watching my first ever live gig and there's sweat and there's hormones and there's alcohol and it's freaking 3.30pm on a Friday afternoon. But very quickly, literally within five years, as our generation, the first wave, turned from 15 to 18, 19 and 20, it turned into nightclubs, not daytimers. And it's from that, Another 5 years later in the mid 90s the Asian underground which to me was a true mm. countercultural musical movement in this country exploded. So the daytime gigs
0: is because because of the cultural background, you know, maybe a bit more conservative by uh, by by general standards. So for you for a kid like you your parents don't want you out in the evening also it might be a bit dangerous if it's actually, you know, there's there's lots of racists wandering around targeting you. So the daytime gigs is a way of actually starting to kick loose a bit, but in a sort of safe environment, and you can be home for sort of bedtime, right? Is that it? Is that, how it, is that yeah, what it was about?
1: it was that, and it was the racism. We we often look back fondly and go, our parents didn't let us out, and that's why mm. we did it during the day." Yes, that was completely it. Also, um, around gender, they may have let their boys out. There was no way they were going to ever let their girls out, even the most liberal South Asian parent I knew in the 80s. So yes there was that was us mm-hmm. and our cultural norms but also there's no way um any nightclub would have put on an Asian night you know, we were uncool. Why would a nightclub have done that in 84, 85? You know, it, it was a great way of nightclubs going, well, look, we've actually got a revenue stream here. We can get this all cleaned up and we'll be open like we usually <laughs> are on a Friday night. You know, between 6pm and 9pm, 9, 9 we'll get it all cleaned up. So race uh, racism also played a part. But yes, it was our cultural norms. But... Even that we broke those by the early nineties. Yeah, but I mean, was know.
0: there was there also a sense that even if your parents had been up for it, that you would you, would you have had a problem getting into a club just as a panther? If you just oh, go and...
1: yeah, you couldn't get into a club. You know, um, look, you couldn't get into a club if it was a bunch of Asian men. Who goes to a club as an individual? I mean, we might now. You and me might because. We just love to do mad things, and, and the world is our oyster. But when you're 19, you're not going to a club by yourself. So there's a catch-22. You can't get into the club because there's a bunch of you. I mean, that lasted until the late, the late 90s, hmm. the turn of the century. Hmm. They just wouldn't let a bunch of uh, Asians in. Look, there's so much to discuss for, as I say, for another time. The politics of race, and when I say that, I mean the real local stuff. Uh, collectively as a, as brits we've not even looked into it you know it's like we'll let black people in but we'll let that guy because he's coming with the white girls and he's obviously a good dancer you know that whole attitude well, you, and... you
0: talked about this before haven't you but this, there is this thing about that um that you know black music had been sort of increasingly accepted and in fact had been branded as being cool yeah. right Whereas Asian music at this time, anyway, that was definitely not. I mean, it's. Just, I, mean, I don't know what the reasons for that are, actually, but you were acutely aware of that yourself, were you, at the time?
1: Yeah, uh, I think uh, you say you don't know what the reasons are, and you're right. No, no one really knows the reasons. I think it's popular music is black music right. is African-American music. Right. So right. afterwards, if you interchange that stuff with Jamaicans or Africans or South Asians... Um, The long march Hmm. of popular culture from the mid 20th century onwards within the West is shaped by black people. White people needed to make some kind of understanding in their head to deal with black people on a certain level, which is why you really have that mad situation where my black brothers and sisters will say, Everyone wants to be like me, everyone wants to look like me, but they don't want me in their house or marrying their daughter. <laughs> right, 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 right. So so the next stage
0: for you, you said it happened really quickly as well. So there's the day gigs, right? but then you start to put on your own nights or pe- or people from your community start to put on your own nights right which you, you don't have to deal with all that stuff right you don't have to deal with being rejected from a club yeah. yourself but you can be out in the evening so what brought about that change in such a p- short period of time
1: it was that was literally just the demographic waves because we were growing up yeah we were growing up because uh, uh, it's not that it, there was no Asians and suddenly there were loads of Asians even though some people may disagree but i could see it myself when i when i was looking when, I'm talking the first year of senior school you know when half the year was brown and then you go to the fifth year so they're only four years ahead of you and about three or four kids are brown you see that demographic change happen very quickly so our demographic change changed that we went to the day gigs at 15 16 yes some of the impresarios and the musicians were a bit older but by the time we started going off to uni uh, which was 88 89 90 um when you first started seeing a british asian community in, in much bigger numbers um that's when all the society started putting on gigs let's go and hire out a nightclub and very quickly um Yeah, we were part of club culture, but still separate. Mm. And what sort of music did you listen to? Bangra, but Bangra, a lot more uh, fused. Within the space of five years, it went from we're playing synths to I'm playing a synth, but I've also chucked a few samples in, um, and the the music of choice, the Western music of choice, maybe not for someone like me. As much as I loved hip-hop, I still had my grounding in Prince and the Beatles. So Public Enemy to me were as important as the Beatles and prince but for most south asians it went folk music at home bit of pop music bungra music and then suddenly hip-hop with with the bhangra thrown in so massive musical changes in the space of 10 years from 85 to 95 folk with synths then by 90 dj culture coming through uh, elements of the second summer of love uh, and samplers and Akai samplers being used straight through to ninety five, where essentially we were channeling drum and bass and house music, and and you know the rest is history. So we're
0: going to get to that in a minute. But what, why hip hop? Do you think? Why? What was? Why was it that hip hop seemed such a kind of harmonious melding with the the Bangra stuff that was going on?
1: Um and was it political? I think it- I think it it, it 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 was nuanced. Yes, it was political a lot of hip-hop was at the time i mean my big first big hip-hop band was public enemy the most political band of all time secondly um i think there was a need to to almost be black because we'd look at our black brothers and sisters and kind of go with their call and even though people are still massively racist they it it was just subconsciously you could tell people wanted to be black a lot of Hmm. white people wanted to be black you know i'm just going to throw that out there um so i think there was bits of race bits of wanting to be black ourselves to throw off the shackles of the 70s specific south asian racism and then on top of that just a lucky a lucky vibe a lot of indian classical music is done in different time signatures, but Bhangra's done in the same time signature as rock and roll. It's a four-four. Yeah, it's a four-four beat. One of the few folk uh, musics in India, which is a four-four beat, so that kind of helped.
0: So it's easy to stick a loop under. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. very easy. So we've got to it, Bobby. We've we've sort of circled round, and we we're getting to it: the birth of the so-called Asian underground. So. Well, for staff what is that? I mean, as I said before, it's a st- sort of slightly strange phrase, isn't it, Asian, to sort of lump it all in together. But what do, what do we mean when we hear that phrase, the Asian underground?
1: Well, the, the phrase, the Asian underground, was actually used uh, by Talvin Singh and his longtime collaborator back then, Sweetie Kapoor. They started up um, a South Asian club night, um, and it was a club night that relied heavily on, and drew heavily from drum and bass culture. I mean, it started at the Blue Note the same time that Metalhead started with Goldie. Uh, it drew heavily from drum and bass culture, which was really coming through at the time. Nearly all of us had our own experiences with the summer of uh, second summer of love. You know, I spent my time in in uh, Nottingham following DIY around, going to Spiral Tribe gigs. I was at Malvern, you know, for that absolutely amazing disaster of a of, of a free festival, you know. So we brought all of all of that. House music was still out there. And everyone at that time was about the same age. Hmm. We are all in our mid-twenties. And we were throwing everything into the pot. Drum and bass was there. The house was there. The electronic music was there. You had Talvin, who played tabla. Oh, my gosh. You know, the first time I see Talvin play tabla, drum, drum and bass, I'm like, it's arrived. <laughs> Everything I saw in my head as a (laughs) a misty thing is solidified and it's Talvin on stage. I go and see Nitin Sawney. These are very young incarnations of both Talvin and Nitin Sawney. Nitin sitting on a stage, (laughs) cross-legged, almost a political act in itself for me. Um, And and he's uh, playing a keyboard and playing a guitar with a classical Indian violinist. So um, the Asian underground describes that movement. So we've got a track you're going to play, right? Yeah, it's um, seen as the de facto anthem of that era. It's from the state of Bengal, a.k.a. Sam Zaman. Um, Him and Talvin Singh were intertwined for quite a few years around this legendary club night called Knockout, where a lot of these sounds happened. And um, I think the reason this has become an anthem, the de facto anthem is, because every time it dropped back in the day, the place just exploded. It's really worn well with time, and it's a perfect distillation of South Asian music, Bengali music, and British drum and bass. album, which Talvin called Sounds of the Asian Underground. And for want of a better phrase, everyone just grabbed onto that as a phrase.
0: So, seeing those guys doing that, you know, with sitting down and, you know, playing tabla, playing sitar, that was a bit like a reverse version of the sort of George Harrison moment for you then, wasn't it? George Harrison's doing it, it was a white English guy doing it that way around, sort of taking some of your traditional culture. This was the other way around, wasn't it? You guys taking some of this other culture with hip-hop and drum and bass how did that happen because that's that's a bit of a jump was it just that this is what was happening in London and Birmingham in the cities at the time this was the urban music that was going on is that it
1: yeah that's exactly it because um you know all of us whether it was Hounslow or Ilford or Smethwick or Hansworth we were deep within the city now we have a very very interesting demographic pattern throughout throughout london but back then places were white and the places that weren't white were both south asian and black mostly black caribbean uh mm. a lot of the african um immigration started after that so yeah it was just the sounds of london you you couldn't avoid hip-hop and then jump from hip-hop into drum and bass uh with a bit of house in between but the the linkages as we know i um, you know if you study black british music you'll know that even though house music was brilliant um the real jump for a lot of people was hip-hop straight to jungle straight to drum and bass so we were just reflecting that you know and then layering on all our All the sounds we heard when we were growing up, just putting it all on top. Like every other musical movement is about splitting your insides, splitting your outsides and pulling out your insides and just throwing it slab-like, (laughs) meat-like onto different musical formats. Got it. And then that must
0: have been very exciting for you guys then, right? Yeah, because well, it was the excitement of being young, the excitement of actually making music, the excitement. But what also with this added excitement of actually you've sort of discovered
1: something or you're making something, which is actually yours. Um, there was always excitement, and it always felt ours, like ours. I myself, I think, I was a bit OCD about it. I kept saying throughout the Bungram movement, and then all the stuff with DJ remix culture that was happening in the early '80s. I kept going, but I want my counter. I want a. I want my countercultural vibe. Because um I still go back to Hendrix, the Beatles and Prince and seeing all of that. B, I want my punk mod hippie thing as well. I want to almost be able to say, here's the name, this is the the dress, the uniform, um, and, and we're young and we're gonna take over the world. Yeah, and and that didn't for me really come into the Asian underground because the Asian underground swaggered into British musical culture and South Asian musical culture fully formed and just went, I'm here. I'm the genre you want. You can actually put bindies on your head and you can wear your mum's sari, but put it around a motorcycle jacket. And, you know, uh, here's the music. It's a drum and bass uh, track, but it's got Mad Tabla playing on top. It was for me like the first, second, third, fourth, all the Summer of Loves happened at once for me. Phew. <laughs>
0: the interesting thing what happens now of course is that there is this Asian underground but it isn't just for you guys anymore it starts to percolate through into the rest of British musical culture right and that's a first in a way isn't it in a way that it came from that so what was that like I mean you know the seeing this stuff that you guys were making having to get this mainstream appeal you know and getting recognised and
1: it, it was brilliant signed by record labels
0: and all that oh yeah
1: there. I mean if you think about some of the key artists mm. um Talvin gets signed by Island Records, you know. You know how much. I mean, it's still it's still brilliant and important. But the cachet that Island Record had in the in the nineties, he gets signed by Island Records. Nitin is getting signed left, right, and centre, and and working with Outcast Records and working outside, and they're doing. I mean, this is the business side of stuff. I was there the night London Records. Um, we we actually put on the night, me and my friends, my friend Imran Khan, who used to run a magazine called Second Generation, put on a night uh, to raise money, I think, for Second Generation magazine, which was our... It wasn't a fanzine, it was a proper magazine, but it was the in-house publication for the genre. And um, London Records turned up that night and um, Asian Duff Foundation got signed. And, uh, you know, I've got to make special mention of Nation Records, Hmm. who were basically the factory records of the entire movement. You know, Akinavaz, who run that label, Ev, Talvin, Nitten, Asian Dog Foundation. When it was like the proto-Asian underground, um, they all came through his doors. You know, trans-global underground came right. through his doors. So, So you had that happening also. Within that space of three or four years, they're getting signed, the audience suddenly, you know, you're getting to the point where it's like, Wait, it's the Asian Dub Foundation and 60% of the audience are white. What's going on? You know, uh, I obviously, being a bit of an idiot, selfishly guarded everything and went, oh, it's spoiled for about a couple of months. <laughs> what have they done? Oh, what's going on? Well, they've taken my style. <laughs> yeah. But actually, yeah. you know, I, I fixed myself pretty quickly because, mm. you know, you have those conversations and everyone's mm. like, well, this is what we wanted, right? Mm. This is what we all wanted. So fucking enjoy the ride. Let's talk about Asian Dub Foundation then, because that's got
0: that's got another angle to it as well, isn't it? Which is you know p- politics. We've that's not really been part of the story so much. I mean, it's been political in the sense that you've been on the receiving end of, you know, some witch between from the kids, right? And uh, but now in the music itself, there's politics. So tell us about that. Where, where the whole political aspect of it came in.
1: Well, uh, the politics was already there in the nascent Nation Records because. Aki, who who ran Nation Records, was also the main guy behind Fundamental, a Fundamental Pakistani-British rap band who took their cues and worshipped Public Enemy. Um, um, You know, that was already there. So when Nation Records signed Asian Dub Foundation, which was around the mid-90s before the Asian underground explosion, it felt like the perfect match. So it was already there, you know. Let's have a bit of one of your Asian Dub Foundation favourites. There's too much to choose from. Some are massively political. Others just fall down like musical notes uh, into the darker parts of your brain. But I'm actually going to give you a slice in time. This is the real Great Britain, recorded just after Tony Blair got elected. And yeah, it's the Asian Dub Foundation essentially going all you left wingers think it's about to change right shut up <laughs> and it <they> did
2: not <laughs>
1: Radical politics, for most South Asians, especially in the 80s and 90s, was part and parcel of our life. I, I drifted into radical politics, not because I'd been radicalized. It just made sense. I had so much anger from the 70s. Um, and then you've got you know all of these situations happening when you're growing up uh the the south riots going on when i was about 10 11 and 12 years old you had all these different um industrial disputes a lot of them involving south asian factory workers um you know and people like fundamental talks about this but what asian dub foundation did was they took the entire history of south asian radical politics which, as I've already said, wasn't boxed away. It was who we were. And essentially set it to music Hmm. and to beats, syncopated beats and and melodies. So, you know, you had tracks like Free Satbal Ram. It was a a, a cause at the time. People were trying to get this guy released. He, uh... um, essentially hurt someone during a racist attack and you know there was so much going on just even on their debut album stuff about naxalites in india stuff about left-wing politics in india how the, how, the, how that left-wing radicalism had uh infected and affected us here in britain and and they loved it man i mean they absolutely loved putting up a fist playing a massive, massive D chord and going, let's go, you know?
0: <laughs> but you said you have not been radicalised because it's, it's become a bit of a sort of dirty term, hasn't it, to be radicalised now, right? But, I mean, what was radical politics for you then? I mean, when you said that, you know, well, you had been radicalised in a way by your experience, not by some outside people coming and doing it to you yeah. right so what did it mean then what were your radical politics
1: then um, my radical politics which formed during the mid-80s and 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 you know definitely soundtracked uh my 90s were south asian and uh definitely left-wing so when i say i wasn't radicalized what i'm trying to say is is radical politics was part and parcel of of most Asian families, even when they weren't into politics. It wasn't like, oh, I'm with this family and they're Tories, and I'm with this family and they're Labour. Most families I knew at the time, uh, you know, this wasn't the, the the days of Sajid Javid and Preeti Patel and, and, and what's happening to the Labour Party right now. Even non-political families, if they knew any politics, it was the radical politics of struggle. So people who never talked about politics spent years talking about the Southall riots, which was essentially an anti-fascist movement set up by um, young left-wing um, you know, South Asians who were actually fighting for their lives. So when I say I wasn't radicalised, I'm essentially saying that radical politics was found in Every, nearly every South Asian house. It's because of what our experience was with Britain. Mm. My radical politics then carried on, and it was always anti-fascist, um, but then carried on and kind of went into socialist, the Socialist Workers' Party. And and my experience with the Socialist Workers' Party turned me off radical politics for a whole generation. You're not alone, <laughs> I'm not alone in that. <laughs> there seems to be quite good at that. Right? But
0: the, um, suddenly... Because of the Asian underground, you've become cool, right? I mean, it's become cool. So we were talking earlier how black music was cool. Maybe you wouldn't have a black person marrying your daughter, but black culture was cool, black music was cool. But you guys weren't, but now you are,
1: right? I mean, that was... That's that problematic, was, you know, as well. Go on. Uh, only because um, it said a lot about how, even how we saw ourselves. We started saying stuff like, we're cool. Right. You know, we, not all of us, but a lot of us will go. Oh, we're really cool. Look, the Guardian's covered us, and look at look at all these people. You know, David Bowie turned up to a Knocker. He came and and just went fucking hell, this is it. You know, Bjork was there at various times when I was there. You know, the Who's Who of the nineties. A of the club. Yes, it was Talvin Singh's club night. Uh, it was at the Blue Note, so they're all there. And we, some of us, are kind of going, we're cool. Loads of the articles went. This is the new Asian cool. And obviously the hotheads reacted against this. And I I totally get why they did. They just went, wait a minute. They decided we weren't cool. (laughs) Now we're doing something which was in us all the time. They've now decided we're cool. And it's still them. And them isn't even white people. It's the establishment. So, um, um, yeah, you know. As a descriptive thing, yes, we were cool, but just know that even that word was really problematic.
0: Cool with a K. But of course, that is, and we, you know, it's come up many times on this show. That is also part of the eternal repeating procedure by which countercultural themes, the underground, is absorbed up into the overground, the mainstream culture. It's always gone. In fact, of course, it's necessary, isn't it? Because the mainstream culture feeds on the counterculture. That's how it gets refreshed, right? Yeah. So it brings this new life into it breathes new life into it right so that it is sort of necessary isn't it that that happens
1: yeah no it's necessary it happens and um you know who am i to complain i've come out of that right. and, and within a couple of years i'm on radio one doing right. a south asian music show uh, and i've been broadcasting for 20 years now on the bbc and playing the most mind-blowing music being made in in the world so i'm not going to complain not because i've done well out of it but because with, with you need that evolution, but I do think that whatever started then was this is possibly a radical thing to say was strangled at birth by 9 11 and what happened post 9 11. Tell us so, um, and I don't want to speak on anyone else's behalf because I'm very, uh, you know, uh, uh, cog. I, I, I know that it's a specifically Islamic. Battle and culture, but for most of us, you know, we we had a situation where we were all South Asian. We were different religions. We came from places like Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan. You know, just like Europe, same landmass, very different cultures, but we knew that we had something going on. Um, the Asian underground really takes off in 97. You know, Talvin wins the Mercury Music Prize. I think it was 98 or 99. All this stuff's going on. And then 9-11 happens. That, that didn't shake us. I mean, of course, it was monumental in, in our collective histories, all of us. Uh, and if you were young and British and Muslim, it was the biggest thing. I mean, still is the biggest thing to happen, you know, in 100 years. But those, it really showed us who, who held power you know cultural power because suddenly every editor every commissioner goes don't talk to me about the asian underground i really want to know what's going on with those kids in bradford i really want to know what's going on with those kids in tower hamlets and and you mean in terms of like looking for the radicalization and all that stuff just everything so, so that i mean trying to make sense you know, uh, I, know. Um, um, I think we're so our lives are so mad now. Politics is so mad. We forget that um after 9-11, as well as the wars in Afghanistan and then Iraq, um, there was a whole situation where the British cultural elite were kind of going, What's happening? All right. Well, now we're going to discuss immigration. Who are these kids? Are they going to start blowing us up? Um, and without jumping into that specifically British Muslim experience, what I'm saying is, is we're creating, but that spread of our culture needs the not, doesn't need, but it helps getting a cosign from the British cultural elite. I'm very cognizant that um, the British cultural elite help spread the Asian underground by putting us in the Guardian and the times and weekend spreads. When, when those people say, we only usually talk about Brown people, one out of every hundred articles or one out of every hundred documentaries. And we've already made a couple of music that just stops overnight. And it's like, what's going on? Who's getting radicalized? Let's go to Bradford. Let's go to Towerham. Let's, let's go to Birmingham. And, and, um, I think a lot of people would disagree with me on this, but uh, I feel like that really played a part in the Asian underground, because music's carried on and there's been other countercultures since then, but it's all been really, really hidden away. Hmm. It's it's not been with what... It's just not been the same as what happened with Bungrat and then the Asian underground. Well, that's
0: interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, so simultaneously, nine eleven, or just afterwards, you know, you basically go into, you know, you, you're starting to work at the BBC. Yeah. You know, and since then, and we haven't got time to go into it, you've had a whole 20 years of broadcasting, making documentaries, making films about your own culture and about all sorts of other stuff as well, right? But you're saying that in terms of the music, in terms of the underground, it actually it's got, become hidden again, has it? Or the, it, the, the, the more recent kind of developments are not given the same sort of, the, the light isn't shining on them in the way it was.
1: Yeah, it, it's still there, it's multiplying, hmm. it's uh, spreading, the diaspora's growing, hmm. the British Asian community's growing, there's now a large, uh, when I say Asian, I mean South Asian, mm-hmm. uh, there's now um, big communities spread across America and Canada as well, and now actually growing in Europe. But what's happened is, is we still carry on. But now looking back, it's pretty obvious that the the magnifying glass and the cosign of the cultural establishment in Britain really, really helped, um, helped Bangra slightly, but most definitely the Asian underground, to be spread beyond these bubbles. It's almost like bandwidth. The cultural elite... The the, the establishment only has so much bandwidth, and we never realized we thought we'd come of age and this is the future of Britain. It's very obvious to me that bandwidth was rigidly enforced, and they went, Look, we're only going to make two things this year on the Asians, and I want it to be on Muslims and radicalization. Right, got it. That's my experience.
0: Listen, uh, Bobby, you've got to go off for your BBC show, right? Okay, where you are actually playing an extraordinary array of music, right? And so and that's 20 years now isn't it actually for you yeah so growing up in those places that you did you know and going through it as a kid as you did right in um if that kid had sort of seen could see into the future and see what would happen both with your own cultural music and also for you personally what do you think he would have thought
1: um i think um for the music he would have, his head would have exploded. It's, it's just brilliant. You know, the music being made now, and even the growth from Bhangra to the Asian underground, it was everything he ever wanted, I ever wanted. Uh, looking into my personal life, you know, I used to dream about Abba walking into my class and going, we want you to be a member of the band. <laughs> You know, and uh, guess what? <laughs> the job that I've been doing is better than being a member of Abbott. <laughs> if you ask me, right, come on, <laughs> hold on a second. Yeah, uh, no, good point, good mm. point. But I never thought mm. in two thousand and twenty two mm. I'd be growing up in a country where every day I open Twitter and people who are my age, because I'm fifty, you know, I um, away from the debates happening around uh with millennials and and generation zoom or whatever they're calling the new generation um all the racist people on social media are my age and they're the boys and girls i grew up with you know um so it doesn't surprise me but i thought that would have gone and um there were little dips possibly i was just putting myself in a bubble again around the age and underground i would have been shocked i just assumed when i was 10 years old, that everything was about us becoming one people, one Britain, British people. I love this country. I always call it my green and pleasant land because I want everyone to know it's my green and pleasant land. And I frame it as a green and pleasant land because I want to frame it with all those historical references to what an amazing, magical island this is. Um, And I'm really surprised that this green and pleasant land, for a lot of people, apparently still isn't mine.
0: Bobby, thanks for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture.
1: Thank you very much indeed. It's been a a lesson and uh, absolutely brilliant as well. Thank you.
0: Oh, no, that was a lesson. That was an education. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. I'll put uh, links to some of the things that Bobby talked about in the show notes. And why not come and join us? Bureauoflostculture.com. Sign up for our newsletter and support our wild endeavours. See you next time. And I think, well, we should finish with something which is post-9-11, post that sort of moment that you talked about. What's this?
1: Well, it's interesting you said post-9-11 because this artist, Riz Ahmed, who's now a successful Hollywood actor, who I found on MySpace uh, when I was just starting out in radio, um, he his debut single was called Post-9-11 Blues, but I'm not playing that. I'm playing the track Can I Live, uh, which he only released two years ago And um, it's bittersweet because it's the perfect distillation of musical cultures and everything I've dedicated my life to. But it's also him just asking if he can live in this internet-heavy, racially obsessive Britain that we're in right now. And I think it's really sad that someone as great as him is writing a track Ask me if he can live culturally, spiritually, and metaphysically.
2: Please just let me live for two minutes. They won't let me live, they're too wicked. Voice inside my head got too vicious. So, can I live? I'm like dumb Ali, Ali. Venus of Ali, Muhammad Ali, and Machiavelli trying to put Pakis on the telly. Uh, trying, Growing up, there wasn't any. Now we 24 7, either ISIS or Emmys. Round. Watching round me sipping Remy, wait till they resent me. Hope my people proud and no forget me. Hope my people don't just end up as a memory. Eventually they went around us up like we cattle. When I'm shouting woke on the panel, can we up to six with no paddle? But I'm round us, fuck it's to battle. They told our stories so we don't hate, Or we self so hating. Face or so bleach got me at war with me. Kill us or make a killing of us. Uh-huh. Drop a bomb of finished products. Yeah. But that's finishes a million of us, yeah If you don't like it, he's a dick you can suck Please just let me live for two minutes They won't let me live, the two too wicked Voice inside my head got too vicious So can I live? Was this part of the plan? Am I putting my foot down or tap dancing for the man? All the scars on my heart hurt me 50 grand. Unwanted by blondes, now they ask for a tan. Some block up on my face, my people's blood on my hands. My people floating face down, my people sinking in sand. My people ain't niche, my people led a niche for his lamp. They taught us cricket and shame, I'm a teacher to stand. No man's land, I'm no land's man. We just pose on the gram and own Lambos and go like land.